Hi, my name's Andy, and thanks for watching today. Before we get started, we wanted to fill you in on our church. Here at Grace Community Church, we have a mission and purpose. Our goal is to point people towards Jesus. If you are looking for a church, we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. There are a couple of different ways for you to start getting connected to Grace. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and more information about service times and smaller groups can be found at ohiograce.com. We would also like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. These times are 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We have a great time gathering for music, hanging out, and learning about who God is and how that affects our lives. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next week here at Grace. our service today and we are talking about some big issues Zach mentioned about the signs and we appreciate you representing us and uh, we're, we're getting a lot of buzz from that in some different places including Tiffin and also a reminder as Zach was saying national conference uh, for our group of churches is meeting here in our church this week so if you think about it you can pray for that I know some people are, are helping us and serving and some people might even attend but but thanks for that and uh, today we are continuing in a series called Blueprint, and we're working through 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 2 now. This is the third, third uh, Sunday that we've been working through 1 Timothy. And this is one of those sermons that's kind of a tough sermon for a lot of people. And I, I've talked about a lot of things. I've, I've, I don't do it often, but I, I've talked about money, and I've talked about abortion, and I've preached through Revelation. I've talked about hell. But today's topic, which will involve women's role in the church, is one of the most controversial topics that, that I ever talk about. And the reason for that is because of our culture. It's the most emotionally charged issue that I deal with as we preach through the Bible. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But as we remember, this whole series, Blueprint, this is Paul writing a young pastor, Timothy, who's ministering in a church in Ephesus, and he's basically saying, here's the blueprint, here's the structure, here's how we do church. And as he does that, of course, that's instructions for all of us. But the reason this is so such an issue today is because of the huge gender debate that is happening in our culture, and, and surely you've caught this, there's a lot of stuff going on in our culture. But as we jump into this, I also want to say that probably not everyone here is ready to hear this. Because what the Bible says on this topic is contrary to what people generally believe in our culture. And not everybody here, first of all, not everyone here are believers, and that's by design. We invite uh, non-believers and people who aren't sure about Christianity, always welcome. We invite them in. We want them to be here. We want you to be here. And we also have a lot of new believers because people become Christians in our church a lot. Uh, it happens often. And because that people are all different places, well, when we cover a topic that's really controversial in our culture, if you have not grown to the point where you have a lot of confidence in Scripture, it just makes it very hard to deal with. And so that's some people you've not grown to that point, so this is going to be a little tougher, but I want you to hang in there. We're just speaking God's truth. We want you to stay with us. Now, the gender debate in our culture, which is kind of overshadowing all this, is huge. I don't know if you know that there's now a push to eliminate uh, gender-specific pronouns. So he and she goes away, and we adopt things like Z and yo and, and some other things. Anybody heard about that? I mean, that's just something happening, kind of a push in our culture. Well, have you heard about this? Well, then a lot of people, for example, there's a whole bathroom debate, right? 
Uh, a, a biological male may decide to self-identify as a female. And then the big debate is, then can he use a female restroom? So you have all that going on. In some places, that person can. In some places, that person cannot. And, and, and so it's a free country. And if people want to pretend, for lack of a better word, that they're something biologically that they're not... Okay, free country. The problem arises when they want everyone else to pretend with them. I mean, that's kind of the issue. And, uh, and so there's a lot of confusion about gender issues. And a lot of it is based on sexuality. But the Bible brings clarity to all these issues in our life. And not everybody likes it. And, and when it comes to sexuality, hardly anybody likes it. But the Bible brings clarity and purpose to all these things. And that's what we're going to be diving into. So there's gender issues in our uh, country, but God's not confused. God created male and female, two genders. And his design was that one male would, would join together with one female, and that's called marriage. That's God's invention marriages. And that's just an example where the Bible's teaching something that's not always culturally acceptable. But we're here to love and support and show God's truth to people who struggle with all these issues. Because we all struggle with some issues. And God loves us all. And God wants us all to know his truth. Now that's gender in our culture. But this gender debate has now come into the church and that's specifically what this passage of Scripture is dealing with. And, and please understand, the gender debate in church, it's not men against women. There are men and women on both sides of the issues. By far, most women here are on the same side of the issue that I'll be presenting here. It's not men and women. And it's not um, about dis discrimination or, or male chauvinism. It's really an issue of biblical interpretation. And it's not actually so much about gender, it's about God's design for families and churches. And then the order and submission that's actually a reflection of God himself in the Trinity that he's trying to, to show us. But the crux of this debate is a verse that we're covering in the next section of 1 Timothy we're covering. It's 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 and it says this, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And, and the context here is order in the church. So I do not allow a woman to teach men in the church or have authority over men in the church. And so here are the positions on that. There are two positions, and now there's a new position that, that I want to explain to you. The first position, as a backlash against the traditional interpretation of this, is called egalitarianism. So you're going to have to remember that. Egalitarian is saying, hey, everybody's equal so much so that there are no gender distinctions. In the home or the church, there's no distinctions. Every role is open to everyone. And so we all understand that. And that comes really from our culture. And Men and women are interchangeable when it comes to functional roles in the leadership of the church and the home. And egalitarians offer biblical arguments, and we'll discuss those later. And no doubt there are sincere believers who are egalitarians, but the emotion of the argument overshadows their understanding of the Bible. And that's what we'll talk about. Unfortunately, the biblical arguments egalitarians use are the same arguments used by some to say, for example, living a gay lifestyle is not wrong or gay marriage is not wrong. It's the same arguments and that kind of raises the stakes. Because basically, arguments like this that egalitarians use that we'll talk about, they turn scripture upside down. They, make, they twist scripture to say the exact opposite of what it's actually saying and I'll, I'll try to show that. The second view is the more traditional view. It's called complementarianism. And that view says, hey, women and men are equal. Um, that we're equal as persons. We're both created in the image of God. 
But complementarians hold that there are gender distinctions created by God that complement each other, complementarians, when it comes to functional roles in the church and the home. So complementarians, our position as a church, we'd say men and women are different by design, God's design, but we're both to be used. God has made us unique in design, but united in purpose, complementarianism. Now, there's a new view that is really running rampant through evangelical churches today, and all call that view blended complementarianism. Blended complementarianism, where you take somebody with a, basically a complementarian understanding that there are gender distinctions, but then they have been influenced by many egalitarian arguments, and then they split this scripture, this verse down the middle, and then they would say, well, women can't be senior pastors, they can't be elders, and if you don't know that term elders is kind of unique to you, come back next week and we'll talk about that because that comes up in the very next chapter. But women can't be senior pastors or elders, but they can teach and preach publicly to men in the church congregation. So they kind of split the difference. Unfortunately, the arguments they use to split the difference are egalitarian arguments, but they only use those arguments for half of their position and don't apply those same arguments to the rest of their position. So it's really inconsistent in that way. And, and, and I know I'm throwing this stuff out to you, and I know some of you already, your eyes have glazed over like, oh, wow, egalitarianism, compliment. Boy, this is going to be fun today. You know, I, I know that's, that's what you're thinking, but, but this actually comes up in real life. Uh, Zach mentioned that this uh, conference that we're having, it's a group of churches, 250 churches or so that we meet together, and we've been part of this group uh, since the beginning of our church, and, and it's a worldwide thing. And just, uh, just how evangelical churches kind of gather together in various groups, and we're one of those. And I happen to sit on the board overseeing this for a, temp, you know, for a few years, five years, one more year, I'll be done, kind of a deal. And just earlier this year, this topic came up. Now, I'm not the guy you pick to sit on a board. I mean, I hate meetings, and we're sitting and we're talking about a bunch of stuff that, frankly, I don't think means... It doesn't matter. You know, it's not a hill of beans worth of difference to me one way or the other. And, and we're never talking about the Bible. But all of a sudden, this issue came up. And this is a biblical issue. So, man, I perked up after like three years of sitting in silence. Like, oh, now we have something to talk about. Because this is about the Bible. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm fired up. And I had a lot to say about that. More to say than anybody else, you know, on the board is kind of the way that went. And as we were discussing this, and, and the reason I had so much to say is most people in the room did not share my view. And so as we're talking about this stuff, we had a break, and I'm just giving you an example. A young pastor comes up to me and he says, well, you know, Kevin, I, I know, you know we call ourselves complementarians, but we would you know, have women pastors and this, that, and the other thing. And what do you think about that? And I'm like, okay, so what you're saying is you're a complementarian. A woman can't really, uh, she can't preach to men or, or be an elder or be a senior pastor, but you're, gonna, but, but you're using the term pastors, which I don't think is a good biblical use of the term. But I go, and so besides that, though, just for you, I don't think it is a pragmatic thing for you to do. Because what you're doing is, because of the culture, you're wanting to call women and put this label on them pastors. But at some point, as they become more and more involved in leadership as pastors, at some point, as a complementarian, you're going to say, well, no, here's the line. You can't do that. And so because that confrontation is coming... Why are you conditioning your church toward female pastors before you get there? It just seems like a mistake, no matter what you felt about the argument. So I'm just, and that's kind of a pastoral thing, but I'm just saying this stuff is alive and happening in churches all around us every day. So where do we draw the line is what everybody's talking. Blended complementarian. Where do we draw the line? What can men and women do? And what we ought to do is draw the line where God drew the line. Because we're not smart enough to draw the line, but God has drawn the line. So we're, we're going to look at that. And we left off in our series in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, verse 8. And now we're going to cover chapter 2, verse 9 through verse 15. And within this passage that we're covering today, Paul gives clear instructions 
to the women in the church in Ephesus, but to women in all churches, actually. And here's what he says. First of all, he says women are to be modest in their dress. It starts in verse 9. Likewise, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, this verse causes some confusion. Say, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Is Paul saying women can't braid their hair? And we actually know more about this because of the situation. What was happening in Ephesus at the time is they had a, um, a, a Greek basis, a Greek culture that had in, been influenced by Roman culture. In the first century, there was a shift in Roman culture in the way women dress, and a lot of it had to do with hairstyle, oddly enough. And in, in other places around, like Ephesus, who were um, influenced by Rome, wealthy women followed those new styles that the Roman women were doing. Now, we have some first century sculptures that actually show us what that looked like for an example, one example of that, and that's this, okay? So this is a first century sculpture of a Roman kind of a new hairstyle that they were doing. Now, understand, this is one, this one woman, the front and the back of her, and think about, I don't know how women pull off hairstyles, but this is before electricity, right? Before blow dryers, before all the stuff that you think might come in handy if you're trying to pull this off. And then along with that, we know from history that because these women were wealthy, because they would have to have servants do this to them, and it would take hours and hours and hours, they would also weave in golden strands and pearls into a hairstyle like this. You know, and you know, maybe that takes half a day or a day to pull that off. And then they would come into church, and we would see that you know, there, there, it was sort of a, a sign of wealth. It was very ostentatious, I mean, and, and distracting. And Paul's saying, hey, rather than get caught up in these new styles, and this only applied to wealthy women because women of modest means could not do this, uh, rather than caught up with themselves, hey, women should adorn themselves with good works. It's more important what's on the inside than the outside is what he's saying. So first thing is he's saying, hey, be modest. And the inside's more important than the outside. Then the second instruction he said, women are to learn in submission. And, and this submission word really wigs people out, and I'll get to that. But in the next verse, verse 11, it says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. What's, what's really weird is in our culture today, this becomes a very negative statement because of the word submissiveness. But it's actually a very positive statement. Because in the first century, there was no public education, right? So education was limited to people and mostly males, although wealthy women did have access, we know from history, to education. So women, especially of modest means, had no access to education. But in the church, they learned right alongside men. In the church, women did have access to education, and they were welcome to join in the general teaching just like men were. So it was a, a positive thing. Now, it's hard for egalitarians to accept that a difference in role does not mean a difference in quality or importance or value. Again, we're saying men and women are equally valued in God's plan. Men, women are not inferior to men in any way. The problem is in our culture, submission in our culture implies inferiority. In the Bible, submission, and in many instances in our culture, it doesn't either. But in the Bible, submission does not, not imply inferiority. And the way you can best prove that is through the Trinity. In the Bible, we know that God, there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they're equal. They've been equal for eternity. Jesus existed before he came to earth in flesh. But Scripture says, especially when Jesus came, that he submitted to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submitted to the Son and the Father. 
And so you have functional submission without mention of inferiority because obviously the Godhead are equal. They're all equally God. And that's the type of submission that God is talking about. It's a functional submission, a functional hierarchy of the Trinity is, is a good thing for us to keep in mind as we flow through this. Bible-believing churches has, have always elevated women. Here in the first century, women didn't have access to teaching. Even poor women of modest means had access to teaching. And it's always been that way through history that Bible-believing churches have always upheld and elevated the roles of women, mothers, and wives. Third thing, instruction to women. And this is the crux. Women should not teach men or have authority over men in the church. Not talking about politics, not talking about the business world, just the church here, but there also there's a home issue too. We're not talking about that today. But in the church and home, and that's verse 12. But I do not, we've already read it once, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet regarding that he's saying. These are two separate things. And really, this could not be stated any more clearer. Paul is saying that in church, in the structure of the church, which is the whole context of the book, women shouldn't teach men doctrine and women shouldn't have authority over men they should remain quiet regarding the teaching of men. So, and that is the controversy right there because in our culture, boy, that just, it sounds like a challenge. That sounds like war, but that's just the plain teaching of scripture now. So the big question is why? Why would it be that way? Why, if we're all equal, if we're all created in God's image, why would it be that women couldn't do these two things in church? And actually the Bible speaks for itself on that. Paul continues in the next verse to explain it. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and with self-restraint. And so he's saying, hey, women have a different role and that they will find their fulfillment in that. Although we also know from the Bible that they teach, and we'll get to all that in the church, just not teaching men in the church. But the fact that Paul cites that he goes back to creation to make his argument, why are women limited? Well, because at creation, men were created first. Why were men created first? I don't know. God just did it that way. And then women... He's going back to creation, and that part of it's pre-fall, before there was even sin. He's saying there was this principle of headship. There was a pattern even before the fall that continued after the fall, because he has both sides of it in that thing. Now, what's, what's he saying? Men and women equally share, I've already said this, in the image of God. We equally share in our commission to point others to God, but we also have God-ordained roles that differ, men and women do. Now, remember, by the way, it's not all women submit and all men lead. Only certain men lead the church, and that's that whole elder stuff that we'll talk about next week. It's not all men. It's men who are qualified by a list of qualifications that we'll go through next time. That's who should lead, not just any man, certain men. Now, in our church, we have a lot of men, which is unusual for a church of any size, the percentage of men we have in our church. And we have a lot of men that are qualified to lead. Not all of them lead. From this qualified men, that's where you get your leaders. And we as an entire church body pick those leaders. But it's from a pool of men who meet the biblical requirements that we'll talk about next week. Now, and, and so this isn't that tough. Here, here's the way Zach kind of sums it up a lot easier th than I do. Zach, he just says this. Hey, the Bible's just saying, women teach women, men teach men, and when they're all together, qualified men should step up and lead with love. I mean, that, that's it. That, and that's really basically what Scripture's saying. Now, so that's what the Bible teaches. It's, it's clear, but, and we could stop right there. But if I send you out 
with just that, you're going to hear some pushback from egalitarians and blended complementarians. And you're going to hear arguments that sound good when you first hear them. But if you just think about it for one or two minutes, you'll realize that they really don't hold water. So what I would like to do is equip you to understand those arguments. So we, we can talk about the other side of the position. But we're going to have to get a little detailed, and I'm going to have to look at my notes a little more. Anybody notice I'm sticking to my notes? You know, like normally I'm just out here talking, and now I'm like, man, i got to get this right. You know, I don't want to say something wrong. I'll be burned at the stake. You know, who knows what will happen to me. So I try, try to hang in there. So I'm going to go over some arguments that egalitarians use and blended complementarians use against the argument that we believe in our church. Are you ready for this? Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. See, half of you, I've already lost you. You're gone. So we're going to go through a series of arguments, and I need you to tune in. And now I'm going to go argument number one. Are you ready for argument number one against our position? Okay, great. This is the egalitarian's misuse of one key verse in Scripture. It's Galatians 3, 28. And here's the verse. And they use this for everything. It says this, there, and Paul actually wrote this as well. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So that sounds like, hey, there's no gender distinctions. But to understand what this verse means, like every verse in the Bible, you have to read it in context. The context of this verse is very clearly, he's just talking about salvation. Everybody can come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, we're one in Christ. There's no distinctions between nationalities, between uh, gender. We all come to Christ the same way. We can all equally access Jesus. Gender makes no difference when it comes to salvation. Paul in Galatians is not addressing roles in the church. He's not addressing leadership. He's not addressing teaching in the church. In 1 Timothy, the book we're going through right now, he is specifically addressing those things. And so you always use the context of what he's talking about to get the fullest understanding of what he's saying. By the way, this verse, Galatians 3.28, is also used by people who... who use it as an argument to support gay marriage. There's no gender roles. There's neither male nor female. So God doesn't care who marries who. Uh, and so they use the same exact argument, but it's taken out of context. And clearly that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that about marriage. He's not saying about that church. He's saying that about salvation. So that's a wrong defense. Are you ready for the second argument? All right, second argument. They, egalitarians would say, well, the context of all this, it's Paul writing to Timothy who's serving in this city in Asia Minor or Turkey that had a huge temple to Artemis, which was a female god. So they say this. This is Paul writing to Timothy who's in Ephesus, and their argument is Ephesus was a uniquely feminist city. So Paul had to put these restrictions on the church in Ephesus, but these restrictions don't apply to any other church, is the way they would argument. They would argue that. But the problem with that is, through historical documents, we have 4,000 documents from first century Ephesus, more than any other major city in the area. And they describe to us what life in Ephesus was about, how the culture was, who was in charge, how people worship this false god, Artemis. And through all those documents, we know Ephesus was not a feminist city, like a, an upside-down city compared to all the rest of the cities in the Roman province. It just wasn't. We know that by all these documents. But, but let's just say, even if it was, we know, we can prove historically it wasn't, but even if it was... It would not matter what the culture in Ephesus was because Paul is not arguing within a culture. 
to back up his argument, to back up his reason for the limitations, he goes all the way back to creation. It says man was created. This is not a cultural argument. This is a universal argument that applies to all human beings, is what he's saying. So it doesn't really matter, but we just happen to know from history that that argument is not right. For example, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes to another church in Corinth, he says, women regarding teaching men, women are to keep silent in churches as in all the churches he prefaces that with. This is not uniquely to one church. Okay, that's the second argument. You're getting bogged down, aren't you? I'm losing you, aren't I, right? Are you with me? Are you ready for number three? The third argument against our position would be this. The false claim that Paul only restricts women from usurping authority. Now, this position, this argument, is based on an unfortunate translation in the King James Bible. We love the King James Bible. We we don't actually use it here, but we use the NASB. But the King James was written in 1611. It's a great version of scripture. But when they interpreted this word authority, they put in another word, usurp. And so I'll read it in the King James. It says this, same verse. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, the word usurp, kind of a weird word, that's to seize something or seize position or power by force or illegitimately or illegally. You're grabbing onto something you shouldn't be grabbing onto. And so the argument goes, well, it's not against women having authority. They just can't take it when they're not supposed to take it. It's just how, it's, how you get the authority that's matter. But again, That is based on an erroneous translation of scripture. There's no word usurp in the original text. It's not there. And it's not only that. If you want to get detailed, probably most of you don't, but if you wanted to get detailed, you could go into the Greek verse here and ask a guy named Kostenberger did a very intriguing study to say, the sentence structure in the Greek demands that these two things be either both negative and both, or both positive. It's not good thing teaching, bad thing usurping authority. Actually, we know from the Greek sentence structure that these are both positive things. Teaching is a good thing, and having authority is a good thing. It's just that teaching is a good thing that women shouldn't do to men in the church. They're not restricted in any other way. And having authority is also a good thing, not a bad thing usurping authority, just having authority, a good thing that women just shouldn't have over men in the church. So you can prove it both ways, but that's all based on an erroneous translation of scripture. And by the way, so this is why in a whole bunch of churches, blended complementarian churches, they will say, I am, and we have women speak from the platform sometimes, you know, if they're telling a story or sharing about ministry or something like that, we just don't have them teaching from the Bible to men. But some churches will say, well, I invited you know, this lady to come up and teach to us from the Bible to men, but I'm in authority and I'm allowing her to do it. So she's not usurping authority. Okay, right. She's not usurping authority, but usurping authority is not there. That's not the idea that was ever in that text. Does that make sense? I I lost you on that, didn't I? Come. No, thank you. Yeah. All right. Fourth argument. Okay. Fourth argument. And, And by the way, what drives me crazy is when you talk to a blended complementarian, that's a complementarian, but they've kind of shifted things. They never want to talk about this verse. This is the main verse that teaches about this issue. And they will not talk about it because it's easier just to drift with the culture. It's easier to just kind of maybe not pay so much attention to that verse and do what's more culturally acceptable. Okay, fourth argument. You ready? They would say this. Women in Ephesus were only prohibited from teaching or having authority because they were uneducated. So they, they make the case, well, he only said that because in the first century and in Ephesus and maybe other places, women didn't have education, so that wouldn't be appropriate for them to leave. But now we do have women, women have education, so everything's good. 
But the, he never talks about education in all of 1 Timothy. As a matter of fact, if education, formal education were an issue, Jesus would not have picked the 12 disciples that he picked because none of them or most of them were not formally educated, right? So it's not about education. And not only that, we know from history that the wealthy women in Ephesus did have access to education because we have these 4,000 documents telling us that. And not only that, we know wealthy women were in the church in Ephesus because that's why he's talking about, hey, don't use gold and pearls, you know, all that stuff. You with me? So it's, it's not about education. All right. Fifth argument. Are you ready for number five? We're almost done. There's only two more. Are you ready? Are you still with me? Some of you are. Some of you, go on. The fifth argument is arguing egalitarianism by naming unique women in the Bible. How many of you have heard this argument? They'll say, well, we know that women could lead because look at Miriam or Deborah or Priscilla. Anybody with me on this? Okay. So let's go through those. Miriam is the first lady that they'll lead. She was, Miriam was Moses' sister. And she was a leader. But if you read what she did, she led women. So nobody's saying that, that that's inappropriate or anything. That's not an argument. People say, whoa, whoa, I got one. Deborah. Deborah was the only female judge. There were no female priests ever in the Old Testament. But there one time was a female judge. But if you read the story of Deborah, it's a huge teaching moment for the men of Israel who refused to step up and stand up against an invading enemy. And so God says, I'm going to raise up Deborah to show you guys how you failed the country. So it was a whole, the whole point was actually reversed that men should have taken leadership and they didn't. And God raised up Deborah to make the point. And so they go to battle, though Deborah didn't lead the battle. Somebody else, a man did. But the point, you know, so again, that's not a teaching moment for how we do church. Then some people would say, well, what about the prophetesses that you see once in a while in the Old Testament? You know, they're spanning thousands and thousands of years, and they're coming up like, you know, with five or six people. And they'll say, what about prophetesses? Okay, well, yeah, there are prophetesses. There were occasionally prophetesses in the Old Testament, prophetesses in the New Testament. Nobody's arguing that. But that is not the same as publicly teaching in the church or having leadership in the church. That's not what that was. So that, that doesn't matter. That's not a point. And then the slam dunk, people will bring up a lady that's mentioned in the New Testament. And her name is, anybody know? Priscilla. They'll say, what about Priscilla? In the Bible, there's a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were actually, when a guy named, this is when the gospel first started being preached. A guy named Apollos, he gets up and he starts preaching. He's a powerful preacher. And Aquila and Priscilla, who have learned more about the way of God, they hear him, and then when he's done, they quietly take him aside, and they teach him the way more accurately. A husband and wife do this for Apollos. But again, we're saying, yeah, that's not public authority, and that's not, still not teaching men in the public. That, that was a private thing that was done. So... All those arguments um, of, of all those various women's, women's, well, women in, in the Bible that they're using, none of those fit what they're trying to use those arguments for. And by the way, every time uh, Priscilla's mentioned, she's always mentioned with her husband, so it's hard to split that out. But last argument. How many can say, all right, you're ready for the last argument? Because you're sick of this. I know. Yeah. So hang on. One more argument. And that is arguing this argument. And it's sort of a non-biblical argument, so anybody can use it. It's this. Well, Kevin, you're saying that the Bible says that women shouldn't be the senior pastors or the elders, or they shouldn't be teaching men. Yet, I know, because I listen to the radio or whatever, I know in our country or wherever, there are some amazing women teachers that seem to do all those things that you say that they shouldn't do, and they're amazingly effective. And we're saying... Oh, women are effective in ministry? Well, yeah, of course. We're not saying women are not capable. We're not saying women aren't great teachers. We have great women teachers here at Grace. We get that. 
But Kevin, but you're saying some of what they're doing they, is what the Bible's saying they shouldn't be doing. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that. The Bible's saying that. But so, so how do you explain that? Well, first of all, I can learn, if I don't know anything about the Bible, I can learn biblical truth for, from a person who's not even a Christian if they know some biblical truth that they're trying to teach me. The point is, we're not saying women can't be effective or women are not gifted. They are. But what I would say, my personal opinion would be, that person would be even more effective. And maybe they're a great evangelist or whatever, but they would be even more effective if they did it God's way. But we're not saying they can't do things or or they're, they're not capable in any way. We're just saying, hey, What's the point? We, we want to do church the way God says to do church. It, it's, it's really not our call. We really don't get to do it any way we want. I'll give you an example of this. How many have heard of the micro kingdom inside the United States called Malasia? Anybody? I think we have a picture up here. Uh, Kevin Baugh, the guy on the right, he does this tongue-in-cheek. It's really hilarious if you read through this. He's got a website. He, he lives in near uh, Nevada, Dayton, Nevada, and he, he lives on like six acres of ground, and he declares it a micronation. And so he has this, uh, this thing, and there's a map of his country. Uh, if you'll see the border there, United States, Malasia. And uh, he, he just kind of does that. They, he, he, uh, he has a border. He has... He doesn't have an army. Uh, there, there's him. He has about 10 tourists a year. And so then that's him greeting somebody there on the border of Malasia and the United States. He actually pays property taxes to a local government, but he calls it foreign aid uh, to help them. And uh, he doesn't have an army, but he has a navy with three vessels. That's one of their vessels. And he also has what he calls uh, the naval infantry, where the two guys on the right and this is him, him talking. It's really a funny thing. This guy just kind of creates his own micronation. And he does it. It's all tongue in cheek. But the point is this. What if we all went home and said, we're all going to declare our houses, our, our yards, micronations. And we're going to interact with each other. Yeah, it wouldn't work, right? Because that's not the way things. It, it's just, it wouldn't be possible for us to all get along like we should get along if we were doing that seriously. And it's the same with the church. It's God who invented the church. Jesus grows the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And he tells us how he wants the church run. And and we just follow that. Personally, it makes no difference to me whether God decided men and women or women and not men or men and not women could be uh, the senior leaders of the church. Hey, I mean, I would have to change some things if that was the case, but it doesn't make any difference to me. It's whatever God wants because we're just a group of people who have come together to do church the way, and, and we're just trying to do church the way God wants us to do church. But know this, God did not fail women when he picked 12 male disciples. Because that's what feminists would say or imply. They would say, well, the world wasn't ready for that, so Jesus didn't do it because of their tradition and their culture. Jesus, his ministry was completely countercultural. What are we saying? Jesus was afraid to do the right thing because he thought it would offend the traditional male chauvinists of his time? No, Jesus wasn't afraid to do that. Jesus offended the culture all the time. You know, and some people would say, well, well, he, he would have picked women among that group. And sometimes they'll try to split and say, if it was after his death and resurrection. Because after his death and resurrection, it was his death that set everything right. And for some reason, people would believe, and then it would have been okay. Well, that's not true either. That's a terrible argument. But it's not true because... After his death and resurrection, he appointed Matthias to replace Judas, and he called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, or most of us. We're just trying to do church how God wants us to do church. It's it's as simple as that. If Jesus intended to to abolish 
gender distinctions in his church, as feminists claim, then the choosing of the 12 was the critical moment in history to act and appoint women leaders. And he could have done that. But he didn't. We also know Jesus was a non-traditionalist. You know, he kept saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you this, confronted the culture all the time. And Jesus honored, defended, and elevated women in remarkable new ways in the New Testament. And he did not fear the male chauvinist authorities of his day. Jesus' followers, like Jesus, from the first century on to now, have always elevated the status of women, wives, and mothers. And Grace Community Church has the same position, the same biblically accurate position on this issue that we've had for over 75 years. Because we don't change or try to change the Bible's meaning when it becomes awkward in our culture. Because the Bible offends every culture. Just different truths in the Bible offend different cultures. And, and I just wrap it up this way. And this is how we can tell when we talk to feminists or um, egalitarians or blended complementarians. Just say this. What if Paul, just what if, what if Paul did intend to say women shouldn't teach men in church and women shouldn't have authority over men in church? How could he say that any more clearly? He couldn't. This is the clearest, simplest way to say it. Just what he expressed in scripture. And we know that's what was written in the first century. It's a whole nother argument. We can prove that and know that and blended Complementaries would agree with us on that. So where does this leave us? What do we do? How do we interact with other people? Well, with the world, we're interacting with them. We want to show them clarity on these roles. God loves everybody. No matter what you've done or doing or anything, God loves you, wants a relationship with you through Christ. Regarding people who call themselves Christians who are egalitarians, how do we interact with them? Well, we interact with them. It's a little more complicated because they claim to be Christians but this is not a huge issue because egalitarians typically have a theology that has veered so far to the culture, they no longer stand for the gospel. So we interact with them and love them, but we don't cooperate with them on anything because of bigger theological issues than this. Well, how do we interact with blended complementarians? Well, blended complementarians have not strayed so far that it affects the gospel or anything. So we cooperate with them. We, we don't separate ourselves from them because it's not a primary issue and we don't believe in something called secondary separation. We don't separate ourselves from blended complementarians. We, we can cooperate with them, but we do not financially support organizations that are actively promoting, if, if that's what they're doing, and not all of them are doing that, but if they're actively promoting something that we believe is wrong in the Bible, that, that wouldn't make any sense for us to do that. So, but where does that, that's how we interact. Where does it leave us as a church here at Grace? Well, like always, we want all women here at Grace to be involved and active in every ministry, in every way, at every level. We want women to be involved and active in Grace except for the two areas where God says no. But obviously, for Grace to run the way we run today, women are doing a tremendous amount of ministry at Grace. And of course, we need them, want them, value all of you who are doing that. So what do we do? We keep loving God, and we keep loving people. And the best way we can do that is by staying committed to God's truth, the Bible. And we recognize the giftedness, the abilities, the value, the dignity of all people. But we also recognize the order and way that God wants us to do church and the home for that best to function. We are unique in design and we are united in purpose. 
And that's exactly the way God wants us to be. And that has not changed. And hopefully will never change as we remain true to God's word. Let's stand and we'll close. You've been through a lot. You hung in there pretty well. Nobody threw anything at me. So things are good. You know, some people can. I know some of you, you're, you're probably wrapping up here and going, man, this guy is like the cleavers, you know, from the 50s or whatever. I don't know where this guy's come from. And some of you are going, yeah, fine. Kevin finally went liberal. You know, who knows what people are thinking. We're just a group of people trying to apply God's word to every area of our life. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, first of all, because of the topic today, we thank you for the women in our church who, who would agree with all this. There's women who would leave our church if we didn't teach God's truth. And God, we thank you for their powerful ministry in our church. Lord, involved in so many different ways. We have women on our staff, women leaders. They just don't have authority over men. And God, we thank you for their, their ministry. And we couldn't do church without them. Because we do churches, we all come together when we exercise our gifts. And you've gifted all of us as believers. And we thank you for that. And Father, we thank you for the men in our church. A higher percentage of men that most, than most churches have and that gives us a huge pool from which to pull leaders from. And God, we, we thank you for that gift too. But Lord, we also know that we've been talking today about some kind of deep topics. And there's probably people here who aren't even believers, not even your followers. Father, somehow I pray that your spirit would impact their heart to say, hey, we're a group of people that are committed to following your word, no matter whether it's convenient or culturally acceptable or not. We're just trying to be true a true New Testament church. And I pray that they would come away with at least that. And God, we thank you more than anything else. We thank you that you allowed your son to come and die on the cross to pay our penalty for sin, to make a way for us to be connected with you forever, even though none of us deserve it. God, we thank you for that greatest gift. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next week here at Grace.